this episode of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast, we're going to look at the elements of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, and I'll actually explain to you what that is, and learn how tradition, experience, and reason factor into innovation thinking. I'm going to explain to you about exomorphosis and how you can either ride along with it or get swept along and out of it. We're going to take a look at how exomorphosis affects you in the ways that you can be innovative, depending on where you are in your life, your work, your career. And I'm gonna give you some specific practical ways that you can introduce innovations into your workplace, especially in situations where your boss or supervisor is not seemingly open to being innovative. Stay tuned. Well, it's a beautiful fall day here in Oklahoma City, and it's time for me to welcome you to the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Now, here's what we'll cover in this podcast. Number one, why is it hard to seek change? For example, to be innovative when things are going really well. We'll look at the Wesleyan quadrilateral and how that impacts our discussion on innovation. You're going to have to trust me. It will make sense when I explain it to you. I'm going to explain why tradition is very hard to overcome and how it blocks innovation. And we'll wrap it up with some practical ideas for how to express that you see trees differently in someone else's forest. Maybe that's the best way to explain it. All right. Well, I have a couple of questions that came up from the previous podcast, and I'll mention it again at the end of this podcast, but as you're listening, if you have questions, if you're dealing with certain issues, if if something that I say in here resonates and you want to ask a question, please reach out to me. My email is david at davidpeterson.com. You can find me all over social media under DLP Speaks. Reach out to me and send me your questions. Send me a question about a particular issue that you're dealing with. Or perhaps, just like I have a couple of uh, uh, issues here, from the actual podcast itself where you have questions. So here's two, two questions that came up from the previous podcast. In the previous podcast, I was differentiating creativity and innovation and making a stark difference between what creativity is and what innovation is. So the question was, does it matter? What's what's the difference? Why are you spending so much time drilling out why creativity and innovation are different? Well, if you remember my uh, definition of innovation, creativity expressed, manufactured, and consumed, creativity expressed are just ideas. And in order for innovation to actually take root, you have to have the rest. You have to have the manufacturing and the consumption. Just ideas Although great, you're going to hear me over this podcast series talk a lot about generating ideas and how critically important they are to the innovation process and that you should be working on coming up with ways that you can generate ideas uh, about any number of subjects on an ongoing basis. Don't get me wrong. I love creativity and I love ideas. But 
innovation. If we're going to talk about true innovation, then those ideas have to be converted into something that can actually be built or put into a, a place if it's a process or a procedure and then ultimately have utility, that it would get used by somebody. So that's my only point in driving out the difference between creativity. I know a lot of people that are incredibly creative, but don't ever really seem to come forward with anything that actually produces some kind of material good. So great for those people to be around. If you know some of those people in your workplace, then add them to your creativity teams, to your brainstorming, whatever. But innovation has to have an end result that's positive. Here's another question uh, that, uh, that came up. I had mentioned in the previous podcast that you shouldn't expect big innovations to really be the focus of your ideation, but... Later in the podcast, I encouraged you to write things down if a big idea comes. And so the question was, hey, isn't that sort of, you know, at odds with each other? So here's my point. A lot of people will only try to think of big ideas. They only consider uh, ideation or creativity or even innovation to be truly earth shattering, amazing, great big ideas. And therefore, because that's such a huge task, really, it becomes daunting to even think that you're going to sit down, you know, and think of one. I mean, just just imagine, if you will, that you were going to sit down and say, OK, here in the next, you know, 30 minutes, I'm going to think of an earth shattering billion dollar unicorn company idea. I'm not saying it wouldn't happen, but that's probably setting yourself up for maybe a little bit too high expectations. So my point is, is that we should just be trying to come up with ideas, not huge, amazing, earth-shattering ideas, just ideas. And as you're thinking of ideas, multiple ideas, you know, will come maybe in a, in a simplistic way. You'll start to combine ideas together. You'll start to share your ideas with others. And then all of a sudden, you might find that the seed of an idea blossoms into the fruit of something truly big. Having said all that, big ideas do come. They do. I mean, just like a flash of inspiration, you've heard story after story about inventors or others that just, boom, you know, that it just hits them. And if you write it down, there's a pretty good chance that you'll actually remember it when it comes time to have to explain it to somebody else. My new favorite quote is, the shortest pencil is better than the longest memory. All right, let's get started with uh, today's talk. I was recently talking with a bank CEO, and the topic of our discussion was really this idea of how to get senior leadership within a financial institution, bank or credit union, to think about how they think, to, to really examine whether or not what they do and how they do it needs to be revisited. Are they, are they looking for ways to be innovative or are they just sort of, you know, going through the motions and so forth? And as a, as a part of that conversation, uh, this CEO you know, I had this little back and forth thinking about, well, think about it. Think where banks and credit unions are. They survived this crazy 2001 recession that wiped out a lot of banks and a lot of banks failed uh, during that time frame. And of course, a lot of people's uh, 401ks and housing values and people that were out in the markets with second and third homes thinking that the amazing run of, of real estate attrition uh, or appreciation was going to go on forever. And, you know, everyone just wanted to party like it was 1999. But as you look at, you know, the way that they study risk, when things are at their zenith, when things are really, really high, you're at the most risk. Think about being at the top of the mountain. You're at the most risk for a big fall. 
So when I think about this from the standpoint of financial institutions and then kind of extend that out to all types of other businesses, even small entrepreneurial businesses that are getting started, a lot of businesses are really kind of stuck in an outdated model. And certainly banks are stuck in an outdated model about what it means to deliver financial services. So if you think about, you know, millennials and even Gen Zs, filling in the top of the funnel for customers. If a bank looks at their customer base, say, well, I've got these older customers, they're super seniors, baby boomers, uh, you know, and as they gentrify and, and unfortunately pass away, then my customer pool gets filled up, you know, in the top of the funnel with younger customers, right? And so as you study this and start to look at statistics, a lot of younger customers, um, you know, are, are looking at I don't know that I have to have a quote bank account in order to do banking. So this was this was kind of the general subject of the conversation with me and this CEO. And he says to me, he says, "Well, David, this sounds like the Wesleyan quadrilateral to me." The the what? Yeah, he said the Wesleyan quadrilateral. He said that's what it sounds like. And I, I was like, "Wow." I have to admit, I had no clue what he was talking about. So, of course, I go to Google and I look it up. And you can actually look at the show notes and find the link to the wiki uh, for the Wesleyan quadrilateral. But it comes from theologian John Wesley, and it illustrated that thinking follows patterns. And so we can we can sort of modify the Wesleyan quadrilateral to our discussion here of innovation. And uh, Wesley talked about that the focus of thinking tends to be tradition-based, so I kind of do things the way that I do them. Experience-based, that ex as I experience things, I may make adjustments in my thinking uh, based on that experience. And then reason, which is my actually thinking about uh, and, and really kind of come, trying to come up with new ways or different ways to look at things using these amazing uh, brains that we have as human beings, right? So I want to apply the Wesleyan quadrilateral to our thinking about innovation, and I'll throw my own little wrinkle there as the fourth element. So let's let's examine each one of the Wesleyan quadrilateral uh, elements as it applies to our discussion on innovation. So let's talk about tradition. Now think about everything from how your mom cooks the Thanksgiving turkey. Uh, to, uh, you know, how you drive to work, the path uh, that you take, or maybe a schedule that you have uh, during the week. Certainly, as you look at your job, uh, there is almost, uh, almost certainly numerous examples of things that are done based on tradition. And in fact, it would almost always be articulated as it's always been done this way. This is this is how we do this, right? So actions and procedures and, and mores and all of these things are passed down, in some cases generationally, with not very much regard to whether there might be better alternatives. Uh, maybe the conditions have changed. But, you know, perhaps we should be looking at this. I mean, I, I would think it would be smart that all of us on some kind of regular basis, maybe at least annually, would look at every single thing that we do that's tradition-based and go, is this still right? Is it? Does this still hold? Should I still be driving this uh, path uh, to work? Maybe there's a, maybe there's another way. 
Uh, we don't do that, of course. We, uh, I, I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody that does. I don't do, I don't do that. I literally, I drive the same way uh, to work. And my, and my wife was, was here in Oklahoma City, and she, and, uh, she came to pick me up at the office. And, and uh, the next morning, I was driving to work. She goes, why, why are you going that way? Why are you going that way? It's like, well, this, this is how I go. She goes, no, 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 turn right here. It's a much faster way. She didn't know my way. She just was exploring to figure out the best way to go and found a clearly superior way to get to the office. And so she, every single day she was here um, and I was with her with a car. She was dropping me off at work. We went that way. And the first business day after she went back to Georgia, dang it, if I didn't turn left my own way. So, so we get very stuck in our tradition-based um, behaviors, even if there might be a better way. It's so hard to break out tradition. The one thing we can do is recognize when we're sort of doing things traditionally, um, and you'll hear me talk in a later podcast about our brains being on autopilot, just kind of doing the next thing. So tradition is one way in which we operate. The next is experience. If we have an experience, then if we're at all open to creative thinking, that can actually spur change. And I love the story of George DeMestral. I think that's how you say his name. Again, in the show notes, if you want to look this up, I've got a wiki uh, link here. But in the 1940s, he's hunting in the mountains of Switzerland. And, and as he's walking with his dog and, and he gets to a, a stopping point, he notices that these cocklebirds, that is what they're called, um, were stuck on his pants. And he just went to pull them off, but they resisted. They were like really kind of stuck on there. And so he goes in and he really kind of examines this whole idea of what is it about these that makes them cling so tightly and then realizes that he could harness that idea into something incredibly useful and invented what we now call Velcro. So just, again, just think about that. Just think about all the different uses and ways that you use Velcro. But it was really back in the 1940s when this gentleman is hiking in Switzerland and observing what's happening in nature that were stuck in his dog's fur. He couldn't, could hardly get them out. And he's like, wow, this forms a really tight bond. How many times have you taken a seemingly banal event like a cockleburr stuck to your pants, the equivalent of that, and then never given it another thought. I'm convinced, without really knowing the facts, that George was literally looking for something to be an inspiration. He, he was, he, who knows, as far as I know, he might have been trying to invent the equivalent of Velcro and just couldn't figure it out. And, uh, and then he saw that. Or he might not have ever had a thought to do that, except he was open to the idea that this experience could be something um, that could be manufactured and consumed to uh, to great effect, uh, you know. So, so what are you doing to what are you doing to capitalize on this? Can can you start being aware in a situation where an experience would change your perspective in how you work, or how you live, or how you drive <laughs> from one place to another, and look and see how ideas come to you. Uh, when you get these flashes of inspiration. Remember, you may not be in a position to do anything about it when it happens. So write it down and go back and examine it later. So so tradition, that's one thing, the way uh, we experience the world. And then when experiences change our thinking about something, that can be a great opportunity. Which brings us to the third 
area of the quadrilateral, which is reason. So reason is when we really kind of use our brains and we're not out walking in the woods and something magically happens. We're just thinking about a problem, trying to use the amazing computers that we have on our <laughs> sitting up on top of our our necks here that that really are uh, uh, amazing tools that we can harness and put to work. You'll hear me in later episodes talk about the right brain, the creative brain. But if we can unharness that, if we can give it a chance, we can really come up with some amazing creative um, ideas. But here's the question. If you have vexing problems, how much time do you spend in constructive, maybe structured thinking to come up with ideas about how to solve it. Again, if you're just walking around waiting for an idea to come, it could happen, but don't hold your breath. It could happen, but it's unlikely. So if we plan time, if we come up with structured ways to really think, um, it's much more likely that we can start to harvest some ideas that may or may not be it, but it may lead us on the path to it. And again, in a future podcast, I'm going to give you a very specific um, uh, set of instructions about how to do uh, structured thinking, structured creativity. So, you know, okay, maybe that idea will come out of left field, but, you know, really kind of reasoning uh, seems to be the better answer if we really want to sort of move through and, and harvest some ideas. And reason also seems particularly useful when you are extending on expanding on existing ideas. So, uh, you know, if you can already know how something works, you have a frame of reference to say, well, how, well, how can I change that? How can I make that different? So again, uh, another a great uh, illustration is Garrett Camp. Here's a guy who's in the, you know, Silicon Valley area, he's a successful entrepreneur. He's, you know, he sold a company and uh, he, he just was bothered by his personal struggles to get a cab in San Francisco when he needed one. And so he taps in with uh, Travis uh, Kalanick, I think that's how you say his name. And the two of them start something where they reason that, hey, you know what, I think there's capacity maybe to use uh, private vehicles and there's, there's individuals who have those vehicles who have time and maybe they'd be looking for ways to make extra money and, and started the, the rideshare company that we now call Uber and people hold up Uber and just talk about how amazing, uh, you know, Uber is, whatever. But Garrett, Garrett wasn't just sitting around thinking about nothing or anything. He had a very specific vexing problem that he was trying to solve, which is why can't I get a cab when I want one? Why can't I schedule a cab, you know, to come pick me up? That whole process of saying, I, I think that this is something that we should be able to come up with idea, and then you work on it and come up with idea. That's using reason, right? And in fact, if you think of Uber, it's really a great example of where experience and reason now have worked together. Garrett's experience was, hey, I can't get the cab when I want. And then reasoning comes up with, hey, here's an idea. Do you think the first iteration of how he thought about ride sharing was what Uber actually rolled out? No, it was months and years. They've, they've had all kinds of, of fits and starts. Um, and, you know, still are not, uh, you know, not exactly blowing the, the doors off, right? From a, blowing the doors off, <laughs> uh, from a revenue standpoint. So uh, just know that this idea of, of how um, experience and reason, you know, will come, come together to, to kind of uh, drive ideas, the more likely is the fourth area of the quadrilateral that I haven't mentioned yet. And I'm going to really kind of focus on how external forces drive future innovation, stuff that's outside of our control. And I'm going to call this exomorphosis.
Okay. It's a made-up word. No extra charge. I give you a new word today. Exomorphosis. Comes from exo, meaning external, and morph, meaning change. So we're talking about change that occurs from external factors. Things are changing around us, and, and we sort of either get swept along with that change, kicking and screaming, if you will, or we decide to embrace that, and we're, we're really an, uh, an active part of that change. So you can see exomorphosis all over the place, but let me give you um, the idea about how the way people are consuming services are actually driving exomorphosis to, to do innovation. So several years back, I'm, I'm assisting a millennial, just a, a very sharp young man. He's, he's working on a startup and I agree to, to serve as his mentor. And we're spending time as we see each other around the, uh, around the country at different conferences and so forth. And we're talking about his idea and uh, we needed to get together again. And I told him I was gonna be at a conference in Orlando on a certain date. And, and I said, hey, why don't you fly down and meet me we can you know spend a couple hours and, and brainstorm on this idea that he had so he flies down he meets me at the hotel I finished doing the work that I was doing there we had a very spirited discussion a great brainstorming just coming up with all kind of ideas um, and then uh, we were going to meet again uh, the next morning and so I said hey have you um, have you checked into the hotel and he says this no I'm staying at a local Airbnb Okay, um, can I drop you off? Now, uh, I'm gonna basically show my baby boomerish here and say that at the time that we were doing this, several years back, I was not exactly clued in to Airbnb, and quite frankly, much like Uber, Airbnb was in a nascent stage. It was still pretty early on for Airbnb. So, as far as I know, it was a, like a physical place, like the name of a hotel or whatever. So he goes, yeah, yeah, you, you, I'd love to have you drop me off. So we, we drive a few miles from the hotel. We're kind of going through a residential neighborhood. I'm looking around going, what, where are we going? And we finally arrive at an apartment complex. And quite frankly, it was kind of a sketchy apartment complex, in my opinion. It's kind of, you know, didn't, didn't actually look very inviting. And uh, I said, uh, he getting he's getting out of the car or whatever. So whoa, 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 this this is where you're staying tonight? Yep. Well, where exactly? I'm staying on this dude's couch. Okay. Again, ah, I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> the idea of hopping on someone's couch sounds like a crazy idea to me. And certainly, uh, certainly at the time. But for him and his experience. This is common. This is extremely common. He didn't give another thought to it. And the Airbnb service made the ecosystem of people looking at previous rentals and could see other people's comments and knew that this was a good scenario, a safe and you know situation and so on and so forth, much like eBay really uses the ratings of other people about buyers and sellers to Amazon the same way. Now you have Airbnb basically saying here these are trustworthy you know good places and and you know he knows that he's going to have a positive experience i picked my friend up the next morning and i asked him so uh, you just stayed on the couch yeah i just slept on the couch well, how much did that cost you 30 bucks 30 bucks yeah 30 bucks so you paid 30 dollars instead of 230 dollars at that hotel so can you observe from your own behavior, 
exomorphosis is at work. Can you experience uh, when new technologies change your ways of living and working? Can't you see where you're sort of being driven, whether it's the advance of smartphones or, uh, you know, you know, anything that that derives a personal benefit to you? And you start to experience that and you use it and you see how it enriches your life or your work or, or whatever. Would you return to the traditional experiential way on your own accord? Would you, would you go back? Right. It, it's like, you know, I don't know. I, I never was a big letter writer. Um, and, but now we can do email and now we can do text. And if all of a sudden, for some reason, they just eliminated those, you went back to writing letters, it would seem excruciatingly time consuming and difficult to do so. And once we've achieved a, a level of benefit to us about how quick and easy it is for us to do something, even something as simple as, as uh, communicate, we don't want to go back. We, we, we get swept up in that change uh, and it becomes an entitlement to us. Well, let's think about just uh, financial services here just for a moment. This is the, the waters that I swim in most often. And I think about millennials and Gen Zs and how they use Venmo for sending and receiving payments. Now, uh, I'm not supporting Venmo. I'm not endorsing Venmo. And in fact, all the money in Venmo is not insured. If Venmo went belly up, every single penny of that would be lost, unlike a bank. You know, so uh, there, it's not an apples to apples comparison. But most of these young people have only really known Venmo since their earliest transactional memories. Maybe even as, a, as an 11 or 12 year old, they were starting to do some transactions with Venmo. So why do they feel the need to walk into a bank branch and open a checking account? If you, if you asked a Gen Z, hey, have you ever thought about opening a checking account? They would probably look at you and go, what's a check? So, you know, exomorphosis is going to affect you. It's going to affect you. And, and, and how will your ability to be innovative be steered or adjusted based on exomorphosis? Well, it really comes down to kind of where you are. And so I want to talk to young people. I want to talk about younger millennials uh, and Gen Zs. But let me just for a moment, just for a moment, let me talk to uh, some of the more senior people out there. Perhaps, you know, you've uh, achieved some level uh, of supervision over others. Maybe you're a manager. Uh, you, maybe you have a small department of three people that you manage. Maybe you're the CEO of a 500-person tech company, right? Doesn't matter. If you, if you have reached a certain level where you're overseeing other people, then you have to be on guard to avoid making decisions based on tradition. You, you're expert at your job. You've been doing it for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, maybe 25 years, maybe more. And so you've sort of ground in a track uh, of how you do, how you go, uh, how you work. And so tradition is going to be a very strong uh, pull towards keeping you on uh, that particular track. Think about it this way. Do you think that the companies that had invested in taxi medallions in cities like San Francisco, couldn't they have been the ones to come up with Uber? Could it be that they thought they were in the taxi cab business instead of how to ensure that somebody needing transportation could arrange that in a quick and easy manner, whether on the spot or scheduled in advance? The taxi companies could have dominated this by simply having the thought that we need to completely change how we get people from point A to point B. 
they had all of the resources, the cars, the, 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 the people who had already been vetted and, and checked out to make sure that they were uh, safe, uh, the, the approval by all of the regulatory agencies to actually run those taxis. They, they could have come up with apps and, and, and the kinds of things that make Uber, the easy payment and all of that. They could have done all of that. And of course, they, they kind of resisted Uber kicking and screaming. And then only then did they start trying to compete with them, it was too late. So is it possible that your company's products and services are just, accept, just as acceptable to being Ubered? What is it that you're doing that somebody else is thinking of the Uber way uh, to take you or your industry out? Right. So you have to be alerted to exomorphosis as this change has happened, as behaviors are changing. You've got to stay on top of that. So you're going to do that by actively listening to who your future customers are or will be and learning what they observe, what they want and what their expectations are. And that doesn't mean the, 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 the older established customers that you have now, but the younger ones that you desperately must get to fill the top of that funnel. The same younger customers that I was talking to the bank CEO about who are gonna be your future customers for your business in the future. So you can reach out, you can talk to family and friends, you could you know reach out, but, but one of the easiest ways to do this is to talk to your own employees. Suppose you hired a new employee, he's 26 years old, they come into your business, they may have some familiarity with your industry, but maybe not. They don't know what your forest looks like. They don't know your trees, i.e. your processes and procedures. And so as they go through the process of ramping up, they, they ask questions. They ask that, why, why, why are we doing, what is this? What, why do we have to do this? And a lot of times their inquisitiveness on these things is met with derision. Like, you know, literally, <laughs> come on, you, just pay attention. We've got these procedures, you know, just just put your head down and do work. And a lot of times the, the uh, particularly younger uh, people who are asking really insightful probing questions and are met with derision, uh, they don't stick around long in those companies. In fact, you know, I hear a lot from HR professionals that millennials are often tagged as really not being very long staying in their jobs or they're, they're quick to change over to a, another job. And you know what? Maybe that's not because they have short attention spans or just think that they, you know, should be a senior vice president in two years, although that could be a part of it. But perhaps more likely than not, um, they're asking legitimate questions and they're just tired of nobody really listening to them. Now, I want you to listen to this description from uh, Mia Mastina. She was a former bank teller and she wrote an article in American Banker and talked about her job. She said this, as a young mother, I chose to be a teller as an alternative to continuing a college education. Banks offered stable pay and excellent benefits. I decided that going to a job to increase my skills while making a living seemed like a better alternative than the huge expense of going to school. The experience was valuable, but I began to see limited growth potential that the banking industry was offering to tellers. I decided that spending 10 years just trying to get the next rung up in a back office position wasn't for me. There were other reasons at the time to feel uncertain about creating a, or continuing a career as a branch teller. The rapid advance of the internet and mobile banking technology has called, caused an upheaval in the traditional branch model. What was 
Once a somewhat clerical position had evolved into a universal teller model, low-level bankers no longer just processing transactions, but must be able to educate customers and be involved in the sales process. This uncertainty is perhaps why banks over the years have battled with well-documented teller turnover problems. But the need for banks to recruit high-skilled tellers for this evolving role makes me wonder why the institutions I worked for didn't do more to try and keep me on board and help me acquire the skills I would need to confront the industry's changing landscape. Almost 10 years later, I've completed my college degree in organizational management and finishing graduate degrees in business and human resource management. Now, now, can't you just picture Mia, you know, being a teller at, at her financial institution and offering up ideas and saying, hey, uh, you know, if there's additional skills you need to get, let's work together and, and I can get these and really just not being listened to and, and constantly rebuffed. And, and I will tell you, as somebody who spends a lot of time with uh, uh, employees across the entire spectrum of banks and credit unions, the tellers are, in fact, often looked at as a very low rung type employee, but who spends the most face time? Who is actually directly interacting with customers uh, uh, who come into the branch more? A teller or the CEO? The tellers. I, I used to say all the time, we should call them the vice presidents of public relations. They're our customer-facing employees. So, so, so I'm just using this as an example where if you're working in an industry and you feel like you're trying to be an agent of change and you're not being listened to, I get it that it's frustrating. It's, um, you know, it's something that, that needs to be addressed. And, and I will, uh, give you some advice here in just a minute. But for those managers, those senior, um, uh, C-suite folks, if you're the, the CEO, pay attention to your younger employees. And that's going to be your best opportunity to anticipate and harness exomorphosis and make a radical change in your business. Okay. So you're that younger new employee like Mia, you're frustrated, you're really at your wits end and you're, you're just about to blow off this job. But in fact, uh, that may not be your best course of action. So as you're asking questions and, and you're getting all of this frustration, um, you know, it, it, it's really weighing on you. So let's say that you, let's say that there's this particular procedure and that something that you do at your job every day. In fact, you do it multiple times every day and you think to yourself, eh, there's probably a better way, but all your inquiries are met with a firm, this is how we do this here kind of mentality. So what should you do? Well, the one thing you could do is say, that's it, I'm done with this and go elsewhere. And so you quit. But just understand that jumping from job to job doesn't always lead you know, to great things. You're sort of on a circular dead end, sort of always starting back at the beginning every time you jump to a new job. So here's what I want you to do instead. I want you to to, because you're almost certainly talking to older Gen X or baby boomers. I want you to think about how you phrase your questions. And my first advice to you is be extremely respectful. And you need to do this. I know it's going it's, to, maybe it's just going to grate you right down to your core, but you need to genuinely be respectful. It's possible that your genuine questions, you're so frustrated about it that you could sound sarcastic or jaded when you're asking it. And trust me, it's possible that you and how you view how you phrase something or your tone of voice is very different from how others view you. And if you doubt me on this, just 
ask your significant other if you if you want to know you know how is this is this what I said yeah yeah you really sounded annoyed uh, at that oh, I was just asking a question no 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 you were annoyed so so a lot of times we don't realize um, you know some sort of how we say things our body language the the way we sort of contort our face or so forth so instead of saying something like why do we have to do this ridiculous step four <laughs> you know um, maybe say something like this. Um, sir, ma'am, I realize that my experience with this process is limited, and but I would really like to be interested to learn about the history of this step four. Perhaps there's a key element of its necessity that I am just missing. Now, uh, okay, at this point, you probably just threw up in your mouth a little bit, and you're like, oh, you got to be kidding me. That's so sucking up, whatever. Uh, uh, I get it. Uh, I get it. Um, but, but just if you can concentrate on the outcome that you want, and then say, how am I going to communicate with somebody who's not of my own generation, my own age? I want to let them know that I have a genuine question. I want to be respective and perhaps even a little self-depreciating. I'm just not sure that I'm aware of how important this is. And then see if you get a different response. Try it. Try out a different mechanism of how you ask your questions and see whether or not the responses that you get back are in fact different. Now, just know that there's a great possibility that the particular thing that you don't understand about this particular process is something that's in fact necessary. I work mostly in financial services. It's the second most regulated industry in the world. Only nuclear plants have more rules and regs they have to follow than banks and credit unions. So all of these rules, uh, you know, it's it, it, for experienced uh, bankers, it's it's hard to keep track of them all. So for somebody new, the fact that there might be a process in a bank that doesn't make sense can be explained by the fact that there is a regulation or a law that requires us to do that. And many businesses have other similar things. So you respectfully ask about a process and yet, even with you asking in a professional way, it, you're just the answer that you get um, is just very negative, and th this is this is this is how we do this here. Okay, don't panic, don't panic. Uh, ask around. There there may be other people who are closer to your age that have been around a while. Ask them about the process and learn as much as you can. Go online in your free time and do a little research, and and find out as much as you can about this thing that's that's vexing you. And then use your reasoning and come up with some ideas or two or 10 about how you could improve those processes. So you're kind of doing your own little ideation. You're saying, I'm not going to let this thing beat me. I'm going to come up with my own ideas here about how this could be done. Now, big mistake. You march into your boss's office and you're listening and say, I have the answer to fix your stupid process. And that's not a good idea. Just be prepared and wait for the right time and place to occur. There, uh, an opportunity is going to arise when this insight will just seem very natural, maybe even invited. They might ask for ideas, and that's always going to create a better result than you trying to wedge in and force somebody to pay attention if you have an idea but the ears are unwilling. Now, 
just remember there's a lot of instances where you can innovate right where you are. If if there's a way that you can come up with an alternative process and it gets the job done and it's not some kind of rule or law, or whatever, maybe you just do it. I, I like the I uh, the idea that forgiveness is easier to get than permission. You know, so what, Jones? What are you doing? Oh, oh, I, we're not supposed to do it this way. I'm so sorry, but I, I was just thinking that because I was doing it this way, I I cut ten minutes off this repetitive task. There's a lot of times where you can just do something. Um, and then the results of it are proof in of itself of its level of innovation. Now, amongst all this, you may just be in a dead-end job with a deadhead boss, and you know at some point you may be forced to move on. But in most cases, a steady focus on innovation will wear down even the most tradition-bound manager or boss. Water wears down rock. Now, don't worry if your ideas are not met with rousing approval. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. One, one of the earliest ideas uh, that I had actually came at an RV park with a bunch of senior citizens who were playing shuffleboard. And again, if you're not familiar with shuffleboard, some of you have seen those table games like you have. Well, this is like big plates and they've got big sticks um, in their, you know, same kind of thing. They're trying to get it into a triangle with points. And they were playing at night. And so I was there, I was probably about 12 years old. I was there visiting my great aunt and great uncle. And and it was just a, I mean, it was a, it was all, they were into it. Now these, these senior citizens were big time playing shuffleboard. And of course the puck has to be completely inside. It can't be touching the line. And there was a particular point at which the puck was so close that the shadow of the lights made it difficult. You couldn't really see whether it was touching the line. And people were kind of crowded around trying to see it. Um, and I was sitting off to the side and I shouted uh, as loud as I could, turn off the lights. <laughs> Everybody burst out laughing, right? Because in my mind, I'm thinking the shadow is causing the problem. If you just turn off the lights, you would then be able to see that it was in. And of course, you turn off the lights, it's pitch black, nobody can see anything. So uh, a, one, an older gentleman, not my great uncle, but another gentleman came by and just kind of, uh, you know, kind of playfully punched me on the arm. And he said, hey, that's funny, but I, but I like the way you're thinking. Right? And, and again, you think about a young person, just it was kind of encouraging. It was like that, at the end of the day, that's not a good idea to turn on all the lights, but it's an idea. Ideas don't have to be good ideas. They don't have to be great ideas but you do have to create ideas if you're going to get to innovation. All right, so let's review. We looked at these elements of the Wesleyan quadrilateral tradition, experience, and reason, and how they factor into innovative thinking. We explored how exomorphosis then follows that up as the change from external factors and that it's likely inevitable. It's gonna happen, so we can either kind of work with it or we can get run over by it. We highlighted how a focus on exomorphosis would affect you depending on kind of where you are in your job, your life, your career. And we documented a process for introducing innovations in the workplace that at least has a more likely than not chance of being positively received. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to look for future episodes as we expand on how creativity can be harnessed to produce innovative driven growth. And I value your comments and questions. Send me a note at my email, david at davidpeterson.com. That's D-A-V-I-D at D-A-V-I-D-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for listening.